Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, Emma Whitfield here, account manager at the Webby Awards. I just wanted to let you in on a little secret. The final entry deadline for the 23rd Annual Webby Awards is coming up December 14th. This year, we've added a ton of new categories to honor your work across voice, podcasts, games, social content series and campaigns, branded entertainment, and more. Don't miss your chance to enter. Head on over to WebbyAwards.com and submit your work before the deadline on Friday, December 14th. Let's get started. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Millennials do good shit. Duh. Earth, it's in your hands. Universal access to all knowledge. Words can change the world. Hey, and welcome back. Wikipedia is entwined in the fabric of the internet. It's been on our radar at the Webby since way back. It won the Webby for Best Community Site in 2004, after all. When today's guest, Jimmy Wales, founded the site in 2001, he wanted to create a digital encyclopedia for everyone. And today, it's exactly that. A link of user-generated wikis serving as the internet's first stop for information on millions of topics. Today, Wikipedia is a core part of internet culture, but many don't see the careful consideration the Wikipedia team takes to tackle questions that impact their users around the world, like how effective is machine learning driven translation for users in Spain versus Botswana? No matter the issue or scope of the project, Jimmy and his team are still hard at work to improve human knowledge. We talked about a lot of things, including why language is a fundamental focus for the Wikipedia team and their growing interest in machine learning and AI. One thing we didn't talk about is how Wikipedia got started. The story was so well captured by Guy Raz's How I Built This Podcast that I urge you to go download that episode after you listen to this one, of course. As the founder of a site that represents global access to information, there's one thing Wikipedia is prioritizing in 2018. I would say that looking forward for Wikipedia, we're looking at the languages of the developing world. It's still very, very important to us, keeping an eye on growth there. Looking to expand the diversity of our contributor base is another very important topic for us. Obviously, fundraising and the finances is something that we're very conservative about and very careful about, so it's always an important thing to look at. And uh, we're actually looking at our public policy outlook and thinking about you know, expanding our capacity in that area because it affects Wikipedia, it affects the internet quite a lot. We do have a big voice, but we aren't always consulted in a way that we think we should be. So we want to beef that up and really make sure that legislators around the world hear from us. So those are some great things to sort of jump into a bit more. Let's let's first start talking about the, the languages because that's really interesting. And a big part about Wikipedia has always been really accessible. I know that you guys have really focused on making it accessible. Is that one of the biggest challenge to making it even more accessible to more people and living up to its mission? Yeah, so Wikipedia's vision is always to have a free encyclopedia for every single person on the planet in their own language. And that means that from the very beginning, we've been inherently global, inherently multilingual, and we're in a lot lot, lot, lot of languages, yeah. um, over 300 languages. But of course, the amount of 
information in Wikipedia varies widely among different languages. We're really, really big in most of the languages of Europe, including English. Uh, we're big in Chinese, big in Japanese. After that, it falls off quite a bit. But we're, we're seeing a lot of growth in some of the languages of India, some of the languages of Africa, though not all. And there's a lot of work to do in thinking about how do we reach out to those groups of people? How do we get them engaged in Wikipedia? What are the tools they need? And of course, one of the biggest things is access to the internet. You know, a lot of people in a lot of languages don't have very good access to the internet or they don't have access to the internet, but that's changing very, very quickly. So as the next billion people come online, which is happening very, very quickly, we want to be there for them. We want to be available in their language. We want to be growing in their language, and we want to make sure that we're supporting that growth. For people who don't know, how do entries get into different languages? Do they have to be creative sort of natively in those languages? Or are you using translation software? It's sort of a mix of all those things. So primarily other language versions of Wikipedia other than, than English, they're equal to English. They're written by local people who are speaking their own language. And of course, people do use translation tools to some extent, but it's not something that in general we found very useful to do on a mass basis. There's a couple of experiments, a couple of small languages that have auto-translated a lot, and the jury's still out on whether that's actually good or a bad thing to do. Machine translation has been improving substantially in the past several years. You can see this for yourself, you know, if you go and use just something free like Google Translate. Certainly between certain language pairs, it's actually pretty darn good. So English and Spanish, for example, I use that fairly often and it's pretty good. But the issue for us is that the languages that need the most help are not necessarily the economically important languages like English and Spanish. So if you look at machine translation to and from Zulu, for example, it's terrible. So I think for the, for the most important languages for growth in the developing world, machine translation doesn't really help a lot. It'll help some, of course. The other thing to remember is that one of the reasons that English is the largest language of Wikipedia, although it's smaller in percentage of Wikipedia as time goes on, is that a lot of things get translated into English. So English being the largest second language in the world by quite a wide margin, it means that people who are speaking, I don't know, Lithuanian, right, will often write things natively in Lithuanian about Lithuania, but they'll also put it in English as well. Just because, you know, a, a lot of times people have a model in their mind of, wow, English Wikipedia is so huge, maybe the other languages can translate from English. It's like, well, let's not forget, a lot of the things in English Wikipedia have been translated from the other languages. So in theory, there could be, and there, I'm sure there are, different entries for the same thing, which have different sets of information in different languages, right? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, usually what you'll find is that people who are bilingual or multilingual will reference, you know, m two versions or more of Wikipedia, and they'll check uh, and see, and they'll look for differences, and that's a hobby that some people have. But of course, there's cases where that gets difficult. So oftentimes, in two different cultures, there'll be a certain amount of tension around a certain topic. And I think Although Wikipedia strives really hard to be quite neutral, obviously people who have a strong view of something find it harder to be neutral. And so on points of conflict between different countries, oftentimes you'll find those are, those are difficult areas. But the other thing to, to think about, though, is that even if you find 
two language versions that have very clear and neutral entries, you still will find that there are certain subtle differences. So I'll just give uh, my favorite example is if you're writing in Hindi Wikipedia, you could mention a very famous Bollywood star without having to explain that it's a Bollywood star in the same way that you could mention John Lennon in the English Wikipedia and not have to explain, oh, he's a musician. And so even if machine language gets really, really good, I don't think it'll ever be good enough to think through, you know, what do my, what do my readers need? Uh, and so there's a lot of times when you think, okay, well, in this culture, you don't have to explain a certain concept because everyone knows that already. And in this culture, you would need to explain that because people won't know who that person is or, or, or what like that. And so this is another reason why machine translation, while it can be a helpful tool, isn't the whole story. What are the challenges to getting more people and more entries in different languages? So I know like at the beginning of Wikipedia, I've read the story and, you know, it was around at that time that part of what you guys were able to do is you brought this community of people together that got really excited about this mission. And it's really built a huge part of Wikipedia. So is getting more entries, is it a matter of doing just going back to doing community building in Botswana or something, or is it a whole different set of tools? It largely is the same, but of course there are always local differences, and you know some of those local differences in in some places have to do with keyboard entry methods. So in a lot of the Indian languages, people have English keyboards, and they may have in the past found it difficult to type in their mother tongue. Or in some places there'll be four different kind of equally popular ways of typing using an English keyboard. And we need to make sure that we're supporting all of those and, and making it easy for people to participate. And, you know, a big part of it is outreach, letting people know that Wikipedia exists in their language. And this is where actually some of the machine-generated content is an interesting experiment. So are you better off with 50,000 badly Google translated entries in a particular language or none. And so the argument that you're better off with them is that basically it's an SEO argument that, you know, like there'll be something people can find in their own language from searching in their own language in Google. Yet, if the content's really bad, then maybe it is damaging. Maybe people go, yeah, there's Wikipedia in my language, but it's obviously machine translated. And they don't go back or they don't don't think they can participate. So it's, it's interesting. And a, a few languages have done kind of large scale translation projects Tell me a bit about how, how the organization and how Wikipedia is just like organizationally run and maintained. I know, of course, everybody knows that there's all these editors for the content, but what about just the, you know, to do all this work that you're talking about? So we have uh, the Wikimedia Foundation is the nonprofit charity that I set up that owns and operates Wikipedia. It's based in California and uh, has, you know, people all around the world, but, but mainly the, the, the bulk of the staff are there in California, just over 300 people. And then we have local chapters around the world. So these are independent charities set up in many, many different countries, over 30 now. And they look after a lot of different things relating to Wikipedia in their own country. Two of the most common things that local chapters do is they work to do partnerships with galleries, libraries, archives, museums to bring more content into Wikipedia from those kinds of institutions. They also handle a lot of the local press relationships. Uh, you know, if a local news reporter in Botswana has a question about Wikipedia, hopefully we would have a Botswana chapter, which we do not yet, and they would be able to direct them and assist them if there's something going on in German language Wikipedia and you call California, they're not going to have a clue what's going on, but the German chapter will know. And so that's that's a big part of the work. Uh, the chapters have been really valuable in bringing more people in. And, and the other thing that chapters do is as outreach, hosting events, getting people in, involved in Wikipedia. 
Right. And you talked um, a little bit earlier that you had this recent retreat and sort of the big topics you're talking about. One of the things you said you were talking about was financing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I was asking people, you know, what what should we talk to Jimmy Wales about? Like, what are the things you want to know? And one of the things that always comes up is people are super aware of Wikipedia as a place that asks them for money for donations, right? They love Wikipedia. They love all the facts. And they always say something about like, and there's the thing where it asks you for donations. So people are really aware of it. But it really was a huge fork in the road to decide to go that way when you when you did in whatever it was, 2000-something. Talk about how that's informed where Wikipedia has gone and how it works today and how many people are contributing. And I don't know if that's public information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all, everything's public. That doesn't mean I have it memorized. I, you can look it up. But yeah, so we, the vast majority of the money that runs Wikipedia comes from the small donors. And I personally think that's really important and really a good thing. Uh, so sometimes people say, oh, why don't you just get Google and Apple to pay for it? They've got plenty of money. And I think, well, just pause for a second. Do you really want one or two big companies with that kind of power and control over Wikipedia, and I, I think you don't. I think it's really important for Wikipedia that we maintain our intellectual independence, and the best way we can do that is if the money comes from lots of small donors. It also keeps us aligned with the public and responsive to making sure that everybody loves us. That's important. It's something that when we first started, we weren't Obviously, you have no way of knowing, would this be a viable model to sustain Wikipedia? And it has proven to be quite good. Every year, we raise more money than we spend. So we, we try to expand our reserves every year. And, you know, these days, we have a, a very a good amount of reserves. I mean, one of the things people sometimes say is, oh, why would anybody donate to Wikipedia? They have you know, 100 million in the bank. And what I remind them is like, if you understand good nonprofit governance, you should have six months to two years of reserves. And that's really important. And with a budget that's approaching 70, 75 million a year, we do need to have that kind of level of reserve. So we're, we're safe in case of a downturn and so forth. But then we're also, because we've been successful, because we've managed to be on a very stable financial footing, we're also now raising an endowment fund. And so for that endowment, we're looking to raise a separate fund of about $100 million. That's our goal over 10 years. And we've really set that up in, in the right way. We have a separate board that oversees that pot of money so that it isn't just a big bank account for some future profligate CEO. It's basically to say, look, you can use this money, but you have to justify it to a, another sort of set of checks and balances. And so I'm hopeful that people will look at that and say, oh, that's actually really interesting. As I say, most of the money that funds Wikipedia is from the small donors. This is the first time when we really felt like we've got a good home for those major gifts. It's one step removed, so there's that less of a concern about would it look like undue influence and things like that. Also, a lot of the, the big donors, uh, of course, they're more interested in funding something that is about the long run rather than just paying the bills this year. Never want to pay the short-term bills. And we're, and we're able to go to them and say, look, actually, we're not just asking you to give us your money, which we're going to spend this year. We're asking you to help keep Wikipedia safe in the long run. And that appeal seems to be working. If you can, like, what are some of the paths that you were able to take by having small donors versus say you had paid membership or advertisers do you like look back and say oh we might have done this instead of this or i mean one of the things that we have been very proud of over the years is that we've taken a very uncompromising stance about censorship so we never compromise um, on our values of neutrality and objectivity and sourcing and all, all that good stuff and so if a nation state comes to us and says, we're going to block you unless you delete this content. We just say, yeah, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Uh, that's never going to happen. And 
that's interesting because if your business model is advertising, for example, then you're directly giving up revenue by doing that. And it's very hard uh, for organization to do. I have my criticisms of various companies, but I understand that's a really tough thing. So I remember when Google went into China, you know, they said they felt they could be a more positive force for change within China by being there than not. And I said, look, I don't agree, but I think that's a reasonable place to be. And I was really proud of them when they decided that wasn't working and they should pull out, which yeah. they did. But that's really hard for a commercial company to do. For us, it's quite easy to do. Our donors want us to do that. Our, our donors think it's really important that Wikipedia stands up for facts and for knowledge. And so that's an example of something that we're able to do because we're in this uh, particular structure. The other thing is, you know, I believe that organizations inherently follow the money. It's just in the DNA of all organizations. And that's for-profits, non-profits. This is why a lot of non-profits, unfortunately, end up in a very sad state of just chasing the latest fads and grant money. And that's not somewhere you want to be. And if we were, if we had an advertising business model, then we would naturally care a lot more about the next million readers in California than the next million readers in Sub-Saharan Africa. Whereas with a donor-based model, we think that pressure is not really there. What we really care about is what the donors care about, which is free knowledge for everyone. So it's just a much nicer model for something like Wikipedia. It's been a clarifying factor to have a very simple, very straightforward mission of a free encyclopedia for everyone. I remember someone once said, I would say in the first year or two, it was back in 2001, uh, 2002 or so, there was the idea, well, should we offer free webmail accounts, right? So people could come and they could log in and they could use Wikipedia for their webmail. And it was like, no, because that's a big job. We could probably leverage our traffic to do something like that. But what does that have to do with making the encyclopedia better. And if we had advertising as a business model, you might very well say, as almost every large property that has a lot of traffic eventually ends up offering email accounts, you know, you might say, well, let's do that because we can get more page views and put ads on it and so on. And, and we just said, well, no, like we don't see any point in that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so it's kept you focused. I mean, very focused. Yeah. You talked about China a bit. Is Wikipedia available in China? Wikipedia is currently blocked in China. So we've had, you know, a long and winding road with China. Sometimes we've been unblocked and sometimes we've been blocked. We continue to have a dialogue, but we're patient and they're patient. You talked about one of the things you guys are working on is uh, policy. I think in the last five or ten years especially, a lot of other technology companies have sort of grown their policy staff. They've sent more people to Washington, hired more lawyers. Google is sort of one of the first ones to really do it, but now everybody is really doing it. There's associations that bring them all together. How do you guys look at that, and what are the objectives you're hoping to advance by, by getting more involved in that? 
Yeah, so, I mean, for us, what's interesting is that we're significantly different from the big commercial giants on the internet. And so our interests sometimes overlap with theirs, but very often do not. And so, therefore, we think having our own independent voice is important. And I think, unfortunately, on a lot of issues, even when the tech giants are right, uh, there's a bit of a backlash against them right now. And so then legislators think, oh, well, if this will hurt Google, then probably it's a good thing. And it's like, well, no, that's too simple. And what we stand for is really thinking about the whole open Internet ecosystem, thinking about the users of the Internet and how they want to do things. We are a community of creators. So we're people who create encyclopedia articles and then with all of our other, you know, sort of side projects. It's a lot of photos, images, textbooks, you know, there's all kinds of things going on under the Wikimedia Foundation umbrella. And it's important that people think about what are the, you know, what are the things that allow that ecosystem to flourish. And copyright policy can impact on that. Obviously, freedom of expression uh, is an important issue. So just as, as one example, we're, we're blocked in Turkey at the moment. It's actually the only two places we're blocked is Turkey and China. And in Turkey, we're very hopeful that the ban will be overturned. But it's something that when it happened, we had no real substantive public policy presence on the ground there. We had no ability to roll out quickly. It came kind of for us out of the blue. And we just think, okay, we need to beef up our, our muscle here. Was there some triggering event there in Turkey that, that made them get so upset? Or? <laughs> it's, it's a complicated, long mess. Yes and no, and we're, we're still hopeful, but it's, it's you know, um, we don't know what's going to happen next. So, so you sort of outlined, so some of the big policy things there, copyright is really important. I assume like things like net neutrality, it sounds like an openness are really important. How have you found... How have you found the reception to your ideas or to your work there from, you know, not law, lawmakers, not just in the United States, but also in, in the UK and Europe and, and all that? Pretty over. good, pretty good. I mean, just uh, to give one example that's a frustrating example, the European Union Parliament just passed a new copyright directive, which will be implemented in a couple of years' time, which is a fairly sweeping set of changes to European copyright law, which is absolutely disastrous. It's a really bad idea. And many of the provisions are things that are going to be quite harmful to the open Internet. And many of the provisions are actually kind of sensible, right? So the whole package is a mess. And one of the issues that we have is that they put in an exemption for the worst of it for Wikipedia. So the exemption basically is for nonprofit encyclopedias, of which there's basically one that has any importance. And they thought that would be enough. So it's, it, it means that they understand that Wikipedia is something special and needs to be protected. But what they didn't understand is Wikipedia is not a company that you can buy off with a provision. We're actually, we consider ourselves a representative of the broad open internet movement. And also there are things that you know, just to give one example, a lot of photos make their way into Wikipedia after they've been uploaded under a Creative Commons license on a commercial website. So someone puts a photo on Flickr, for example. They license it under a very open license so that we're allowed to use it, and then we take the photo from there and use it. If suddenly Flickr has to change their terms of use to make it harder for people to upload things, then that damages the ecosystem. It damages the open internet. There's other examples of things that would be really important and helpful to us, but that we've had a hard time even getting on the agenda with anyone because they're not commercially interesting. Uh, one is uh, freedom of panorama. When you take a photo outdoors of a building, for example, that building, if it's fairly recent building, the design might be under copyright. 
And so the question is, can you just take a photo of a building and post it online? Now, most ordinary people think, obviously, you're outside and you take a picture of your friend in front of a building, clearly that you can't possibly be violating someone's copyrights. Well, that's not true. And in Europe, it's very spotty. Some countries have freedom panoramas, some do not. There was an opportunity for the European Parliament to say, actually, yes, we should have freedom of panorama. If you take a photo of something outside, it's not copyright. You know, that, that the, the rights of the architect who created the building don't extend so far as to say you can't take a picture of my building. Maybe they extend so far as you can't build a copy of my building, right? That's what their commercial interest is in. And there's virtually no other side to this. I mean, there is a small collecting society for buildings, uh, pictures of buildings or something like that. It's not economically important. Most architects don't even know this or care about this. It's not an issue. But we find it really hard to even get it on the agenda because there are big lobbyists for the music industry, movie industry, big tech. None of them care about this issue. Wikipedia cares a lot about this issue because it's important to us that our users be able... And, and also most platforms don't care because, frankly, there's no lawsuits about this, right? Yeah. It's kind of not a big issue, except we're so uptight about following the law. I was going to say, it's almost like because you're a important organization that's trying to be a good citizen and do things the right way that you're sort of over-penalized versus people who just post things all yeah, over the place. Yeah, people post things all over the place and just don't care. It's hard for me to imagine Instagram saying, actually in Belgium you can no longer post pictures of recent buildings because like that's just crazy right and there's nobody suing anybody about it uh, but we're like yeah actually we do delete those pictures and we don't think it's right but we're following the law right I think for a while I don't know where it is now I haven't followed it recently but there was uh, the Eiffel Tower sort of fell in this thing for a while where you could take a photo of the Eiffel Tower during the day because it was so old um, but then at night they put up like a it's lit and, and the lighting designs can be copyrighted and you can't post pictures of it, it would, which I think most ordinary people when you think about what should copyright look like in the future? What would genuine modernization of copyright do? And if you're not, as a part of that thinking, thinking, well, what do ordinary people want to do with intellectual property that we all think is actually fine? You know, whoever designed the light show on the Eiffel Tower isn't really going to make any less or more money because you can't post a picture. I, I would argue they'll make less because one of the things that's important is will people come and travel to the Eiffel Tower to see this light show? Is it going to become a famous thing? And then whoever's paying for it will be happy about that rather than saying, no, we're going to squash all you have to physically go and see. It just makes no sense. Yeah. So, But uh, what we would like to do is have a bigger you know, ability to converse with parliamentarians. And it's really hard with a tiny staff. They can't sort of engage in all that work. So we want to invest more in that sort of thing. Do you find that there's allies in the sort of in this space like uh, Mozilla or there are there other organizations? That there, there are. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, certainly when we talk about open access to academic research, there's a big movement there for open access. Mozilla is an interesting example as a nonprofit in this space. And also a lot of the internet giants, the ones who care about policy at all, they do care, possibly if you're cynical for purely commercial reasons, but I don't really care why they care. I'm just happy that they do care. They do care that ordinary people are able to use the internet in ordinary ways and, and want to defend that. Talk to me a bit about how you think about Wikipedia in other on other platforms, right? And so it started off as primarily a web experience. It's a mobile, it's an app now, it's a mobile web experience, but it's still primarily thought about as on the web. How do you think about it in other places? Specifically, I'm thinking about these voice assistants are relying heavily on Wikipedia for information now. Um, I'm assuming you guys do a lot of work to make sure that content is machine readable. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't be working so well. Yeah, so we started off as a website. I always joke we were Web 2.0 before the term was invented, and that's actually a fact. And we are now the majority of page views by a pretty wide margin is mobile. So that's interesting. 
And we are also finding that our content is making its way, you know, we're part of the infrastructure of the world now. So if you say to Alexa, who is Tom Cruise, Alexa will read you the first two sentences from Wikipedia or whatever. And that's great. Yeah, it, it is a great thing. It is exactly what we're here for. I'm happy to say that Amazon recently donated a bit of money to the endowment fund um, as a kind of a thank you. And they can thank us some more if they want to. But, you know, that kind of use of our content is something that we're really happy about. We obviously have certain concerns about making sure that there's attribution, that people understand where it comes from. I want to make sure people understand that if they think Alexa is the smartest person in the world, it's because she read Wikipedia. You know, that's really important. And when she gets it wrong, sometimes it's because she's reading Wikipedia incorrectly. Or we made a mistake. We're not perfect. So all that's great. And yes, we, we have a great interest in machine-readable knowledge because we think that's a way to power the further distribution of knowledge. So we have a project called Wikidata, which is one of our fastest-growing projects. It's very active. You know, it's really a place where people upload data sets fairly coordinated way, and, and there's a lot of cool stuff happening in that area. And I actually think that in the next five years is going to become quite a fundamental piece of broad internet infrastructure, even though most consumers will never know about it. What kind of data sets, like stuff that machines can use to... It can be, you know, like the simplest kinds of things would be populations of cities, right? That, those kinds of things. But it's also like biological taxonomies. Where it gets really interesting is taking that data and doing interesting things with it. Where do you see that going? How will people use I, that? I or? think it's it's one of these interesting things that the kinds of possible use cases are so diverse that it's really hard to, to even imagine. So just as an example, one of the things that's in there is a lot of geolocation information. And so you can imagine that information powering all kinds of apps, just knowing, having a freely licensed way of knowing where the Eiffel Tower is, is pretty important. What people will build out of that it could be almost anything. A lot of new apps might come up, interesting, you know, concepts of various kinds. It's super interesting to hear you talk about what you guys are working on now and looking forward at, and especially just because you're obviously somebody who cares a lot about human knowledge. And, you know, this feels very, like, uplifting in a, in a good way, right? Because I, I think on some level, these past few years, especially for people who've been around and worked on the Internet early on, it's been, you know, it's felt like a bit of a dark time. And I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily just because of Brexit and Trump, but it, it's the sort of the excitement that we had. It's still there, but now there's sort of like this dystopia part that we're all kind yeah. of facing. What's your perspective on that, given what you do? At, yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's obviously it's on my mind quite a lot. And... You know, the dream of the internet is that people can become educated, knowledgeable. They can meet people with different ideas and engage in a meaningful way and come away from it having learned something. And there is a lot of that. And it's great. And it's the internet is a fantastic and amazing things. But there's also a real rise of algorithms that drive our engagement with content in a way that I think is mixed and, and there's a lot of side effects to it. So, you know, if the if the metric is whatever keeps you clicking longer and longer and longer, it isn't necessarily the content that you really want. I talk about sort of the reptilian brain versus the Aristotelian brain. You know, you, you see some link and, and you know it's been chosen by an algorithm which has been A-B testing it on tens of thousands of people before you saw it. And it's something that's tempting to click on, but it's not really what you want to be doing with your time. And there's a lot wrong with that, a lot wrong with business models that are driving that, and a lot of concerns about that not just being kind of a waste of time, but also that that being hijacked. So, you know, you get a lot of interesting, intellectually interesting, but quite frightening things going on. Just, you know, as an example, let's talk about Brexit. So I live here in the UK. 
one of the things that has emerged is that there were advertisements targeted at vegans, effectively saying, well, finally now, without the EU rules, we can do something about animal rights that we've been constrained from doing. And you could equally well run an ad, and I don't know if they found the opposite, but you could equally run an ad, uh, fox hunting was some years ago like a big issue here. You could say, finally, we can reinstate fox hunting because we're free of those European rules. You know, you can tell different people different things. You can pick that particular little issue that is their issue, which for many vegans, it would be animal rights, and you can just tell them that message. And that's very different from the old forms of propaganda where you had to craft a big message that appealed to a broad category of people. Now you can target very specifically and mislead people in very specific ways. And that one's a kind of blunt instrument, right? Because I mean, I don't have any idea, but my guess is that most vegans would be pro-Europe. Don't know why I think that, but... Part of the problem, though, too, is that we, I mean, there used to be essentially these, like, these gatekeepers, media companies, you know, and there was a lot of issues with that. There's lots of information that we didn't get because of that. There's a diversity of information that wasn't there that's there now and all those things. But to some extent, they prevent, they said no to those things. And, you know, primarily now these, the platforms that were being targeted, those things on Facebook and Twitter and Google and all the other ones, maybe they want to say no, but for whatever reason, they haven't necessarily said no to those things all the time. And it's like the, the gate is gone and we haven't really replaced and it. I, and I think there's a, a real danger here. I always remind people that if, if we had a slightly different set of historical facts, and Facebook suddenly announced, we're going to start deciding what's good information or not, and we're going to shape your worldview by showing you things we think are good for you, we would all freak out. I mean, that's like a dystopian nightmare of what we fear from Facebook. And so I think we should be very cautious about saying, oh, Facebook, you need to be the gatekeeper. Well, maybe not, right? And 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 what does that really mean? And what, what should Facebook be doing? And I think they're taking some good, cautious steps. Remains to be seen, you know, how far they go. I mean, why do you think uh, – so the New York Times essentially plays that role or yeah. played that role, and people can argue with them and disagree, but people yeah. kind of accept that. Why do we not accept that with Facebook? Because it's so big or – Not because – I don't think it's because of size. I think it's because fundamentally Facebook is not a publisher of news stories that they've created and put out. It is a communications platform. And so just as we would not be happy if the phone company intervened on our phone calls to say, oh, you've called your friend to campaign for a certain political position, but we think you're wrong, so we're going to cut off your phone, right? And so if I want to share something with my friends, that's really up to me. And I think Facebook would be wrong to say intervene in that and say, yeah, but we've got a senior editor who thinks this is a mistake. We're not going to run this, and we're not going to let you tell your friend that. It's not the same thing at all. And... At the same time, like some of the steps I think they are taking that I do think are very helpful is if I start to share something and it's been flagged by a number of people as being a hoax and it's been checked by a reputable third-party fact-checking organization, they probably shouldn't stop me from sharing it, but they should probably warn me, right? So I, I, I start to share the link and they say, oh, you know, basically – you don't want to look like an idiot in front of your friends. You might want to read this fact check first and make sure before you, you share it. I mean, I can give a personal example where I luckily did not share something. I saw this very amusing article about scientists have proven that if your house cat were big enough, they definitely would eat you. It's a great story, right? Everybody chuckles uh, when, you, when you hear it. It's all, it's a common joke about cats. It's something we, you know, everybody identifies with that. My daughter, 17-year-old daughter, has cats, so I was about to send it to her, and I, I just paused for a second as I was in the process of sending it. You know, I looked at where the story came from. It was an outlet I had not heard of. I was like, you know what? It doesn't actually name what study said this, but it does name one scientist. So I googled the scientist. I found the original paper. It was a psychological study of different types of cats, and basically it didn't say that your 
house cat would eat you. It just said there are some personality similarities between lions and house cats. Duh. And I'm sure for people researching in that area of, you know, what, what are the personality and behavioral differences between lions, tigers, house cats, etc. I'm sure it's all interesting, valid research. They just basically blew it up into something much more fun and dramatic and also not true. And so fortunately, I didn't share it further. And about two weeks later, I saw a friend of mine shared it. And I said to them, oh, by the way, actually, I checked into this. It's probably a hoax. And so it'd be nice if, if you're about to send something to your friend, if, if Facebook goes, hey, hold on, just check this first. And not to prevent you from sharing, but just to give you a bit of heads up. And I think they're going to have to look at more things like that, just from a quality of experience point of view. I mean, a lot of people are very unhappy that the, this feeling of like, there's all kinds of misinformation circling online. Do I have to become an expert on cat research to deserve like quality information when I do look at something? I shouldn't have to. Yeah. Um, and you, uh, Wikipedia doesn't really, I mean, I'm sure you use some algorithms at the bottom of the stories to sort of say like, hey, here's another article that's kind of about this. But like there's no Wikipedia week. There's no like discover Wikipedia. Yeah, no, you'd be surprised that we don't do that at all. We, we don't at the bottom say, oh, if you like this, you'd probably like these three more. We don't do anything like that. Do you think that ties back into the, the way you financed it to start? I think, I mean, in an indirect way. Yeah, I mean, we could have chosen to try something like that. I mean, it was basically our human editors will, the community will see also, and they will choose sometimes to link to other things, not algorithmically. And in one sense, right, if what you're measuring is purely do people click on those, then I'm sure algorithms could outperform human editors who are just choosing things they think are related. But from a quality point of view, I'm pretty sure the human editors are better. Just as a, as a joking example, at the bottom of every article, you might have, I don't know, whatever celebrity died yesterday, right? If you're interested in this, you might be interested in that because basically everybody is today, right? And it's not very helpful. It's not really a see also. So I think that you know, we are interested in, in AI and algorithms as an aid to humans. So we one of the things we do have is you can go to the recent changes at Wikipedia and you can set it different ways and then save your results. And so I have a filter that shows me what the algorithm thinks are bad edits made in good faith by new contributors. Because I just think that's interesting. So somebody new has come in and they've done something incorrect, but there's no suggestion or no indication. According to the machine, I literally have no idea how it works, right? And I find pretty much I kind of agree. Like when I look at those, I'm like, yeah, I see what this person was trying to do. It wasn't terrible, but they screwed it up. You know, they added a sentence and didn't put a period on the end. That's little things like that. Last question. What do you what have you learned in creating and growing this organization, which ultimately is trying to, you know, make a universal encyclopedia for everyone in a, in a very different way than other organizations have gone about doing it? What have you learned by creating this collaborative organization that we could apply to some of these other bigger internet problems? Yeah, there's a couple there? of things that I would point to. So one is that talent is much more widely distributed than a traditional encyclopedia or, frankly, traditional journalism models would account for. And so the idea that the only person who could possibly write about, let's say, the history of the Eiffel Tower would be an absolute PhD expert in the history of architecture in Paris, right? That That's not true. There are a lot of talented people who can write really good stuff and who can do good quality research at the encyclopedia level. And the other is just that most people are nice that, you know, I, I always say, you know, online is where it's easiest to forget this because, you know, go to any newspaper and then scroll down and read the comments and you'll be quickly convinced that the general public is filled with angry jerks, right? But then you think, okay, but 
look, look at Wikipedia. Like, there's loads of really nice people there. And obviously, we're not perfect. We have quarrels and things like that happen, of course. But it's basically nice people. And, and then I say, okay, well, like, pull back from the internet. And if you think of, you know, out of every thousand people, there's probably 10 who are like really annoying and maybe one, but not maybe less than one who are actually malicious. And so online, we get kind of those actually malicious people get empowered and the annoying ones have a loud voice. But that isn't really representative of humanity. And that what we see at Wikipedia is like, there's lots of really nice people and they try to be helpful and they're happy to leave the world a little better than it was when they woke up that morning. Do you think there's something about how they talk and organize on Wikipedia where they're, they're a little less assholes and all those sort of bad things? It's a few things. I mean, one, we, we have a, a community culture that says no personal attacks. You know, we frown on that kind of behavior. We're not perfect. Sometimes, you know, we have some editors who are doing good quality work and they're actually being very annoying to other people. And we sometimes tolerate that too much because you know it's like oh this person should be blocked because they've attacked three people this week and then someone will say yeah but they just created 15 fantastic articles okay not the right answer but you can see how that can happen but it is about uh, establishing a culture that says we're not a wide open free speech platform and that this kind of thing is just not tolerated and then you end up doing a much better job so I you know I actually think it is because again because we don't prioritize the wrong metrics, right? So if we prioritize the metrics of how many total people are editing Wikipedia, we would probably tolerate a lot of noise that we don't. Uh, and so I think for certain companies like Twitter, it's quite hard for them to prioritize in the right way. And I would love a Twitter that said, actually, you know, if five trusted people block you, you're blocked from the whole platform and not worried about monthly active users, but more worried about the health of the community. It's hard for them. I, I think they are actually realizing that in the long run, if Twitter is mainly known as a place where horrible people yell at each other, uh, it's not good for your long-term business model, right? It may be okay for the short term, but they understand like you really have to create spaces that people enjoy. Uh, that's really important. I think it's a great place to end it. Jimmy Wells, thanks for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thank you so much to Jimmy Wales for joining us. Check out the new Wikidata project to see an interesting collaborative collection of data sets on so many topics and consider donating to Wikipedia if you can. There'll be a link to the Wikidata project in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a few seconds to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Webby Awards, visit www.webbyawards.com, that's W-E-B-B-Y awards.com, or on social platforms at The Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at DMD Likes. This episode of the Webby Podcast was recorded at Soho Radio Studio in London. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is an afternoon lunch at Joe Stone Crab. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.